Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Today's guest has no idea what he's going to say when he steps on stage. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, I love getting up here. I tell them, I go, get me up there. Get me. Let me unleash. That's what I'll say. I, I must have said it a hundred times in the green room. I said, get me out there. Unleash me. People wonder what's it like in the green room. They got to put me on a leash. They have to put me on a leash in the green room. And when, and when my name gets called, they take me off the leash. I'm like, Arr! Get me out there! Let me do a speech! <laughs> this is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was comedian Rory Scoville in his new fully improvised stand-up special, Live Without Fear. Or is it Live Without Fear? That is just one of the many questions we explore in this surprisingly deep conversation about the art of stand-up comedy, the legacy of Conan O'Brien, and Rory's dramatic transformation opposite Rose Byrne in the new Apple TV Plus show, Physical. This is such a fun episode, so I do not want to waste any more time before we get to it. Here's me with Rory Scoville. I feel like our timing is kind of perfect because... Uh, one, we're, we're talking the week after Conan went off the air, and I, I wanted to talk to you about a little bit about Conan because I know you have a, a long history with him. Um, and then it's also this week is the 10th anniversary of what I believe was your Conan stand-up debut, which is a very famous uh, double set with John Doerr, which has, has gotten some renewed attention uh, this week yeah. as well. Um, so I saw you, you've done 10 appearances on Conan over 10 years, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, but starting with that one, yeah. can we can we start there? What do you remember about that that first uh, Conan appearance? Yeah, I remember being uh, so wildly nervous. You know, this was John Doerr's creation. He had done this in uh, uh, Toronto with other comics. In fact, I've heard rumors that he's done it with like four comics at one time <laughs> on stage at the Rivley. But uh, yeah, I, I was just nervous. I, I just want to make sure I stepped in and, and I didn't screw it up. And obviously you're on TV. And despite the fact that it's being taped and you could always start again, I feel like because of that joke, you sort of can't start again. You kind of yeah, got to get it. It's not going to work in the first time. time. Yeah. So I, uh, when he asked me if I wanted to do it, cause we had done it before in Montreal and I think once in LA and I was just like, yeah, I'd love to, to do it. So let's, let's try it out. And, uh, yeah, it just happened to work. I think I learned all the mistakes prior to running it on Conan, which was really, there's just one mistake you can make and it's listening at all to the other person. <laughs> yeah. If you can tune them out, which is really hard to do, especially when they are, you know, two feet, beside you watching you do it i don't i have no idea how, how you're doing it i i i think the only reason i like if that would have been the first time we had tried to do it i don't know that it would have worked because i would have lit tried to listen to him and tried to bit a, a part of his act and tried to figure out my slot of when i should do something and and i think what i appreciate the most about it is how organic so much of it is that he and i have talked about like even when we walk out and wave like there's nothing <laughs> there's nothing planned at all the yeah. only thing we had ever planned was when i sense or hear him getting to the guitar you know get get the woman out of the crowd to do my thing with and then when i hear him smash the guitar get rid of her and in the set that was the only thing and uh yeah it's it's bizarre that it's been 10 years i will say that and conan's setup is so perfect too and kind of just teed you guys so up good. so well so well this doesn't happen often in our business, but we have tonight accidentally double booked comedians for the show. And uh, yeah, we, we, we booked them both for the same night. Uh, I am sorry. I don't know how this happened. And I guarantee it will not happen again. It's very unprofessional. And you'd think I'd know better after all these years and my team would know better, but this happened. So rather than rescheduling uh, one of our comics, this is interesting. 
They have both graciously agreed to share their time tonight. So please welcome John Doerr and Rory Scovel. Yeah, look at this crowd. This is incredible, Thank you, very you guys. Much Thank for coming you so out much. Tonight I really should be appreciate fun. that. That's a good response oh. out of the gate. Well, I thought I'd open by telling you I would hate I got to play pool with a zebra. I'm not a fan of flying. I hate it. Hate being because on planes. Because he might say, my stripes are noises. solid. You know what I mean? I won't flush the and toilet say, oh, on an airplane because of the noise. Like, it scares me. I mean, people truly believed it. And I mean, I had comics ask me if it was a tr genuine mistake. And I was like, no, why would, why would a late night show be okay with that? Um, and then you've sort of continued to collaborate with John on that show, uh, playing the usher during crashing his set, which was another great one that you guys did together, which really just escalates into a, a fun place. Just total chaos. Yeah. I'm truly, you know, in, in talking about Conan, you know, that the show ending the end of an era really for, especially you and I, because, uh, you know, people in our sort of age range, it's, it's really been there most of our adult lives of when we first started to develop a genuine opinion on what kind of comedy we were drawn to and liked. And it actually started even before then when he was writing for The Simpsons. You know, those are probably some of the best when episodes. we didn't even know. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I kind of wish that John and I could have gone on to do a, a third sort of installment. And who knows, maybe uh, with Conan's Variety Show and whatever he does next, maybe there's a world for that. But I'm truly in awe that we got to do um, any of that stuff you know yeah i mean and what on a personal level did conan mean for your career um because you appeared there so many times now you you've done podcasts with him and i know you're you're continuing to work with him in some ways so what has he meant for you so much i mean him jeff ross j jp buck the whole team there that was willing to take a chance on letting us come on the show and and do those crazy things, but also just stand up and also just having an interview and just the fact that they liked me. And I, I learned over time, oh, Conan's not just having me as a guest. He genuinely does like my <laughs> comedy because before you just think you're a guest and you don't really, you know, you don't really meet him and Andy. And then you kind of see them at things and you talk to them. And it wasn't until I really toured with him uh, and some other comics back in uh, November of, of 2018 that I was like, oh, he really is supportive of what I'm doing. You know, it take, I'm, I'm a little slow. It takes me a while to kind of catch up to what's happening. And I uh, I I look back on that 10 years and and I, it creates a little bit of credibility, I think. I think, you know, when when you can get on a late night show, no matter what it is, it means something to comedy clubs. And, you know, it's it kind of means something a little bit in the comedy community. And the fact that he got behind me, that really boosted some credibility. I don't know where that credibility might have taken me, but <laughs> it doesn't hurt to, you know, say that you've sat on the couch to talk about something or you've done stand up that he enjoyed and laughed at or, you know, got to do a tour with him. So. Yeah, it was it was really powerful just to see in that in that last day that he was on the air, all of the comics coming out and just saying whether it was on Instagram or Twitter or wherever that you know they he gave them their first shot. Um, and you know I talked to a lot of comedians on this show and asked a lot of people about their late night debuts, and so many of them were on Conan. So I mean, I guess he he also and I guess it's credit to the bookers there too were willing to to take chances on people in a way that maybe not every show has been. I think the fact that they made it a point to try to have comics on as, as often as they possibly could was a huge supportive statement to the comedy community. I know obviously they didn't get everybody on and, and everybody didn't have the same experience that I did, but I, I know the fact that they went out of their way to create that space, which was very traditional in the sense of what Carson was doing, you know, on Friday nights, having a stand up on the fact that they tried to recreate that sort of once a week minimum, it, it was meaningful to me, whether I was a part of it or not, to be a stand-up comic where you just kind of go do shows and you get paid in, in beer tickets <laughs> a lot yeah. of the time, uh, you know, when you're in town, to, to have someone go, well, hey, we want to have you on television to showcase that work you're doing because we're aware that can launch your career or get you more paid road work, you know? Yeah. Um, so I actually uh, missed it the first time around, but I've now been listening to your dad's podcast, uh, 
partly because I, I just became a dad myself a couple months Cong- ago. Ah, oh, congrats. Thank you. Um, so yeah, you're it's in fun it to, now. You're yeah. in the shit now. <laughs> it's fun to listen to those. Um, but yeah, so you've talked to so many dads. So I guess I, you know, on a on a selfish level, do you have any uh, tips for me or anything uh, that you wish you'd known two months in? I wish uh, I wish I would have known to quit thinking so far ahead and really, even though you can't slow time down, try to be more more present and not so. Uh, living beyond the moment, always trying to calculate your next step. It's hard as a stand-up to not do that because your whole career is sort of three months ahead of wherever you are. And then you kind of take that over to your family life. And it, you know, I think I've gotten better at it, but I wish very early on I would have had that revelation prior to my daughter being born because I think I would have been more present. I'm happy to have learned that lesson, but the sooner you can try to develop that presence, the, the happier you're going to be. I know. That's the thing that everybody says, and it's hard to, uh, easier said hard to than do. done. Very much so. So let's talk about your your new special. Uh, is, it, is it Live Without Fear or Live Without Fear? Or is that part you of know, the, it's, uh, you know? It's sort of, uh, it's sort of both. Uh, I think it started as Live Without Fear uh, from my somewhat a, a epiphany of, of that being the title. And then... Uh, I think it just happened to be one of those things that you go, oh, it works both ways. And then you act like you intentionally decided to do that. (laughs) You try to take credit where it's not due. (laughs) Yeah. So it's a really fascinating project. And just for anybody who doesn't know, um, it's a fully improvised special slash documentary that you taped over uh, six nights and totally different shows. And we get to see a lot of that stuff. Can you just talk about the idea to to do this? Because um, I know improv has always been a big part of your your standup, but this is taking it to a, a totally new level. Yeah, so I'll give you I'll, I'll give you the long story in a fast way, so it's not uh, so so molasses pace. But um, it, the theater where I recorded my Netflix special and this special is called Relapse Theater in Atlanta, and on Saturday nights at one a.m. they used to have this secret show, and uh, I did it one time when I was in town and. Uh, I got introduced and I was uh, pretty high and I went up and probably because I was high and also uh, just whatever the energy of that crowd, the fact that it was so late at night, whatever the reason, I made up most of the show and any of my bits I did, I actually performed them almost like they were a script with characters as opposed to words I was just explaining to get to the punchline. And it was sort of this personal revelation of, oh my God, I not only did I just make up the whole show, but this was actually really good, meaning I know for a fact I'm capable of doing it. Ever since then, I was like, how do I tap into that so that this is what I start to do? And even if I don't do it, I develop this insane confidence knowing I'm capable of doing that. And so I just decided to book And this is years later uh, that I finally took the step to try this, but I decided to book six straight nights, very low ticket costs, assuming I'm going to bomb most of the shows uh, at Relapse Theater to just go, hey, I'm going to try and experiment with no stakes at all. I told a buddy about it, Jay Larson, and he said, oh, that's the kind of thing you need to shoot. Like, that's an interesting story. So I got Scott Moran. We got uh, Dave Nebone at Abso Productions. Absolutely. Absolutely. the Tim and Eric production company, they, he, he threw us some money and he said, I, I like this idea. I'll throw you money to rent the equipment and get whatever you need. And so we came in and we got to take over the theater. We set it up and our goal was just to shoot the six shows. We didn't really know what we were going to do. And the concept was originally every night, whatever I discover, I can kind of work on so that by the time we get to Saturday, I've sort of concocted a, a, an hour that I sort of did over the course of a week. Um, That was sort of what we were sort of thinking. Then after the very first show, I decided that was so fun. I was like, I want to make them all up. I don't want to like, I don't want to step into it with anything. The the drug was so good. (laughs) I want to feel that again. And so that's all we were doing. And then we were filming me screw around offstage, you know, not really knowing what footage to capture. And then Scott Moran, the director, he happened to interview Bob Wood, the owner of the theater, uh, who has an amazing story about the theater that I've always known about. And I've always told Scott, you should interview him. So for whatever reason, Scott decided to finally do that. And he came back to the apartment we were staying at. And he was like, I know the whole thing. Now we're going to tell this story. We're going to show your story and just show it's, it's two people sort of improvising their way and just seeing where it, where it gets them. And it was, it was, I think I love the fact that, you know, improv is obviously very organic, but also the discovery of what we were making in itself was also very organic. Yeah, I, I love the the scene 
that we see you at maybe it's the first night right before you go on stage and you're kind of psyching yourself up and, and, you know, saying, uh, telling yourself just be funny. So what is that moment for you when you know you're going out there and you don't know what you're going to say when you get out there, but you, you know, you have to perform to this crowd. What's going through your head? I think it's all energy based. I think it's all like, what is the energy that I'm going to bring to the stage. And it's, it's something I, you know, just telling myself to be fun. I I try to make sure to remember to do that even on just a normal show at a club. (laughs) Yeah. I just try to like, remember, like quit, quit looking at the crowd and deciding who you think they are before you even step out there and quit looking at the stage or, you know, there's, there's so much self doubt in stand up comedy that I, I think a lot of comics would openly admit. I mean, it's, it's, you're putting yourself on the line, (laughs) in front of strangers. And, you know, I'm, I'm still in a space where some people come to the shows who have heard of me and they know what I do and that's great. But I, I still am in a space as a performer where a lot of people just are at a show that night and they don't really know what to expect. And so I just want to make sure that I go out and, and, and have that vibe where someone's like, man, the, the thing I paid for and the thing that I wanted to do for an hour and a half, I experienced it because I was just in a room that was just fun to be in. And so I think knowing that you don't have any words to start with, you don't have a a, a point to make, you don't have any sort of path to go down. I think just stepping out going, clear your mind, get rid of the pressure, keep your heart rate low, and just talk and just find the things will present themselves if you don't look for them. And I know that sounds like you know, so it's, it's a, it's something we always are told, like, you'll find more, the love of your life when you're present. not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think, I think that's what ends up happening in, in standup. I, I've come to a point in my life, obviously this being my career where you just accept and you just go, I am a funny person. I do know how to be funny. I do know how to concoct the equation quickly to come up with something funny. So then knowing that you're kind of like, well, then I should be able to do something with this as long as I stay out of my own way, meaning the expectations and the doubt and the pressure. And I think kind of that mantra of like, just be fun. It, it kind of reminds me all of those things in one sentence, like clear your head, go out there and, and just see. But I, I have to say every night I went out, I was, I w- early on, I was very terrified. So weird to, to dive into it, to just kind of, figure it out, look at all y'all's faces, try to find it, you know, just driving here tonight was just a goddamn beast of a issue. I mean, the traffic in Atlanta, I mean, what in the fuck? What in the fuck is happening with that traffic? Do you guys know, what if it literally, what if literally I find nothing else the rest of this show? I, I literally talk about the one thing that everyone is like, yeah, we've, we've talked about the traffic. <laughs> These Uber drivers, there's a, a fatality. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever done a show ever where within the first three minutes, I stepped towards the crowd and went, there was a fatality not that long ago, yeah. And then the Thursday night show, something, the fun, I had fun on all of them, but Thursday night, the fun changed its flavor and it really made me tap into the, the flow of finding the funny things quicker as I spoke. And I paid more attention to myself and the audience in this sort of simultaneous way to where I was like, oh, there's constant jokes that aren't just, it's just being up here and creating this space that people just are laughing at that they're inside of. And Thursday night was, you know, not that I've gone on stage and been able to recreate that in that same way, but that was a revelation of like, this is what I want a show to be. I want people to leave going, I don't know what I just saw, but I liked it. Yeah. The other uh, discovery that you make at some point is that you you don't have time to filter yourself in the same way that you would if you were developing material and writing it. So it actually makes you more honest on stage and, and more able to say things that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise said. Is there an example of that that you can remember, you know, saying something that you think or talking about a subject even that you maybe wouldn't have talked about in another scenario? 
Yeah, one one that I have mentioned that always jumps out at me. I feel like there were a bunch, but one that that is a moment that people could maybe discover because it's in the the actual film was not only just telling the audience that I've I I've watched a lot of porn because that is a topic that has been in my I think it's in my Netflix special where I do say that I have watched it and that for whatever reason I was trying to limit myself the whole week. I was like I don't want to go down roads I've already been down, but I found myself saying that and then quickly. I was like, don't, don't take this the direction it always goes, like say something else. And just naturally like kind of telling the audience in a genuine place of like, well, I've watched gay porn and I don't know, you know, just saying that to the audience, I was like, I have, I have actively been like, I want to see, I want to see it. I have gay friends and I have who have sex and they have, they have obviously not avoided seeing heterosexual sex. It's, it's everywhere. I was like, I, I want the reverse of that. I want to know. And for whatever reason, saying that to an audience, not that it's a confession, because I'm I'm not like embarrassed by it, but it's obviously not something you ever say. But saying it, I, I, for some reason, when I said it, I was just so confident that people understood what I, why I watched it and what I was talking about. But then I also make a joke about a gangbang. And as I'm saying it, I'm like, oh, this is also a I'm revealing something <laughs> yeah. that I've seen. Yeah. And in, and instead, for some reason, instead of feeling embarrassed about it or uh, or whatever, that that vulnerability, it was so liberating. It was so cathartic because I could truly feel the audience knowing exactly what I was talking about. And I think I think the thing that I walked away with overall from those six shows was that discovery of. Don't don't try to create yourself as the hero because none of us really are. <laughs> we're, all, we're all we're all broken with mistakes and these vulnerabilities. And I, I I think it just felt so good to not try to be cool. And, you know, there was one night we talked about conspiracy theories and I was like, why? Why? you If you kind of do believe in a conspiracy theory, you're afraid that someone's going to call you crazy. But instead and, and, you know, we went into like the obvious ones of like. 9-11 inside job, which I think makes a little hint of that in the movie. But also we talked about like JFK and I was like, why not just tell people like that, you know, you don't want it to be an inside job, but you're, you do have questions and why can't we just ask? <laughs> yeah. And it, well, it, I think yeah, that, that's, what's so great about so much standup, com- you know, great standup comedy is that it is a, something that we've all talking about something that we all have thought, but no one has, you know, been sort of brave enough to say out loud yeah yeah you know talk about in in this way and i think the only reason i came across it because i just didn't know what to talk about (laughs) i don't think i would have ever made these discoveries except i needed something to say and at some point someone just yelled out conspiracy theories and so we just started talking about them and i was like god this feels so good to just say the things that you're embarrassed by or the things that you greatly regret you know i think people at least in the live show format, it's what I love about stand-up, is that people get a sense that they know who they're talking to today. So if you tell, you know, something that you're you you wish you never did as a person that you thought was that was horrible or, or something you said to somebody or the way you treated somebody, I think the audience almost goes, Yeah, me me too. I also, you know, have similar regrets, but there's almost this, like, we understand who's talking today. And it, I, I, I know that I don't know how to explain it. And I'm not doing a great job. But that catharsis of that was, it was almost therapeutic. Yeah. Uh, in a no, way. I could I can totally see that. Um, how do you, where do you go from here? I mean, you, I don't know how much stand-up you've done since you, since you filmed this. I know it was a, a few years ago, but this past year obviously has been not a big year for stand-up. How has this experience influenced what you did after or what you want to do next? Yeah. So I think it helped me kind of discover, and I've been doing this for, I think around 17 years. I think that's right. It kind of helped me finally discover what I think is maybe my process. Uh, Because a lot of the material, you know, if you were to sit and watch all six of the shows unedited, and then you went and watched my hour that I was doing on March 10th, 2020, you would see that a lot of those jokes I discovered in those six shows, I really crafted and worked on 
unintentionally, you know, I didn't set out to do those six shows to discover any material, but I walked away going, oh, that's a great, that's a great bit. I should work on that. And, you know, then it kind of just became my act. And I was so ready to shoot it by the end of 2020 that what I really wanted to put out there and still sort of intend to is I wanted to show people that I have the recorded footage of the birth of a joke and then what is sort of the death of a joke, you know, because you'd obviously go on to write new stuff. I have that hour. I just have to get it committed back to memory and figure out the performance again. Cause it's, I, I think because of how it was born, it's maybe my best hour I've ever written. I feel like it's just so packed with uh, great laughs that I want to learn that hour again, uh, get out on the road a little bit, shoot that hour. And then from there, start this process over. I want to book a lot of improvised shows and see if I can actually get to that hour to shoot much faster uh, just as a fun thing to to try. Yeah, I feel like a lot of comedians talk about writing on stage. And sometimes that means, you know, a tag that gets added in the moment or but they don't necessarily mean writing on stage the way you're talking about. Yeah. And I think a lot of them truly, I, I have always looked at this, the thing that we did as, you know, I, I didn't invent it. Reggie Watts goes on stage and makes up his show all the time. Kate Berlant goes on stage uh, and makes it up. I think Maria Bamford plays in the moment in the most beautiful way I've ever seen and other, and, and so many other comics I could name that just go up and discover it and, and, and play. I, I actually think a lot of comics would find themselves very capable of not only doing what I did, but really enjoying it and discovering a lot of material that way. And then, and then stepping back and going, oh, I really did write <laughs> on stage. Like you're saying, it wasn't just a tag. It was really a whole concept that popped up out of nowhere. Coming up, Rory talks about how he landed the role of a huge asshole on physical and the intimidating experience of going toe-to-toe with Rose Byrne. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. We have had so many incredible stand-up comics on this show, including Patton Oswalt, Maria Bamford, Tignataro, Jim Gaffigan, and so many others. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Rory Scoville. So on the total other end of the spectrum of the type of work that you're doing, we can talk about physical, which is really your, what I, you know, I believe is like your first big dramatic role, even though the show has a lot of comedy in it. It's really, it's, there's, it's pretty dark show in a lot of ways. So what drew you to that? What were your first impressions of, uh, of the script when you, when you first heard about it, um, when the process started? When I, uh, when I read the, I think originally, you know, I put myself on tape and you'd sort of just have the sides. So you kind of don't know the bigger picture, but when I got to do the callback, I think is when I was sent the full script. And I remember reading the script going like, Oh wow, this is like, this is real. This is about real stuff. I mean, this is about an eating disorder and this, this woman's own image of herself and how she talks to other people within her, you know, in her own internal dialogue and, and how she talks to, um, about herself and about others and, and, and reading my character going, Oh, this guy's not even 
likable and there's not really a joke to ever save this guy's likability. I was really drawn to that because, you know, I do so much uh, comedic acting that even when you're playing an unlikable character, you're always given a joke and, you know, comedy can create likability <laughs> even when you're a bad guy or you're, you're just a piece of shit character. I think I love the fact that I would have to sit in this and also if I wanted to try to find any likability, carve it out completely on my own and not with a joke, but trying to tap into this guy's vulnerability and his insecurities and and see if people can kind of relate to it and go, oh, I get it. He's he's not a monster, but he sort of is, but I get why he he sort of is. You're gonna tell me that this is my uh, my chance, my political phoenix rising from the ashes? Yes. Hey, we didn't move here so you could climb some bourgeois academic ladder. We moved here because we drove down the coast <laughs> and we saw that limitless horizon. <laughs> the Beach Boys song came on the radio. Wouldn't it be nice? Yeah, it was meant to be our home. Remember? Of course I remember. And now that awful real estate developer, John Bream. He wants every inch of our coastline to have one of his shopping malls on it. And who's gonna stop him? There's no one with the vision you have. No one with the brains. No one cares about brains and politics anymore. Ronald Reagan was just elected president. Yeah, I mean, the, the show, you know, kind of took a chance on you because you hadn't done something like this before. And I think it really paid off and you're, you're great in the show. Did you have to kind of uh, fight for it? Or what was the audition process like to to land this role? You know, it was, I just put myself on tape and it was, I am I hate putting myself on tape. I'm not very good at it. And uh, I, I usually do it with my wife and she reads the, she's also an actor and she reads the lines and we go over it. And I'm usually very uh, self-defeating. I won't like how I sound. And then I just say, fuck it. I hate all this. And I just want to stop. And I sort of did do that after a few takes. And then my wife was like, it's a pandemic. We have nowhere to go. <laughs> just Why don't do we just do it a hundred yeah. times? Yeah. She was like, let's just do it a hundred times. There's nothing else to do. And I was like, yeah, I was like, you know, you're, you're right. You're right. I don't know why I, I become such a baby about my own view of myself. And so, you know, she pushed me to kind of do it a few more times and you do have that breakthrough where you go, Oh, okay. I kind of like it now. And then it, I, I don't know how many people they looked at or, or were trying to cast. I don't know who I was uh, up against as a, outside of some other comic friends who told me they had read for the same role. And I think the fact that I got to put myself on tape and do a zoom callback audition from my house, it was kind of great because I was isolated and I didn't have to know who else was, you know, in the hallway waiting to get called in? Yeah, very different experience sitting in the hallway of people who kind of look like you. And Yeah, and I can see people and I, I've auditioned and I see people, you know, you run into all the time and you know that they're great. And you just kind of sit there going, ah, well, that guy's probably going to get it because I think he's awesome. And then you hear their audition on the other side of the wall and they're crushing it. And, um, and that might and that might hurt your confidence and prevent you from it getting it. It kills my confidence. Yeah, I mean, I going on stage with no material and trying to figure out a show, while I'm terrified, it's a good terrified. And I don't go up there thinking I can't pull it off. But acting is such a different muscle that I'm just kind of like, well, I'm good enough at stand-up, so I've gotten opportunities to act. But I'm not stepping into this arena fully prepared and fully knowledgeable of how this process works because, like stand-up, you, you have to do it to figure it out. And, you know, as you just said, I, I it's true. I haven't done a more dramatic thing. So if someone said, can you do this role? I kind of have to honestly say, I don't know, because I've never <laughs> been asked to do it. I, I believe that I can because I want to believe that, but I don't totally know. Um, and then, you know, as as uh, complimentary myself it is, I, I walked away from it going, I think I pulled it off. I think I I think people believe believe it. And that's all I care about. Do people believe they watch it and do they believe it? Yeah. Well, you also feel very right somehow in that early eighties, uh, timeframe. You really, uh, I believe you as a, as an early eighties guy. Yeah. Those, those glasses I have on and those gigantic sideburns. Yeah. <laughs> I love that it's you and, and Rose Byrne too. Cause you know, you're someone who's coming from comedy and going into drama 
Um, and she is someone who's also done this great back and forth between comedy and drama. And she's, she can be so funny, um, but also is just incredible dramatic actress. So what did you, what did you learn, you know, working one-on-one with her? So much. I was wildly, uh, wildly intimidated. She is, I would be too. Yeah. I mean, she is just incredible. Like she's, when you see her in comedies, she's pulling it off. When you see her do more dramatic things, she's pulling it off. And, and I think when I say, I just wanted people to believe it. I I think every scene I had with her, I just wanted people to go, I see them as a couple. And I believe, you know, when she steps into a scene and is like, you know, just at a hundred percent, I believe that this guy's holding his own (laughs) good enough (laughs) to where I can, I can watch this scene and, 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 and lose myself in it and really, really take it in. But as far as lessons to learn, yeah, that was sort of my mantra every day was just, I'm here to learn. I don't, I don't want to step in with any sense of an ego that I know what I'm doing. And I think, uh, I think the timing of all this was, was a big part of that. You know, the pandemic took stand up away and, uh, I, and that, that's an interesting psychological place to get to when you've been doing it for at that time, 16 years. So it's interesting to go, Oh, that's gone. And I, I, I have this opportunity. I really should try to learn how to do it because I've never been given this type of opportunity. Um, and then also my dad had just passed away in June of that year. You know, we started shooting in November and I think, I think the, a part of my, my ego about, who I am as an entertainer, or how how important I think I am, or how how big I think I should be, or what I deserve. I think you finally get through all that stuff in the healthiest way, and I, I it just happened to be when we were shooting this show that I I came through the other side of that to be like just admit you don't know shit and <laughs> just step into this and try to see what she does and see how she does it, and and the other actors as well, and and just you know quit quit thinking that you should get to shoot the ball, just work on passing it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's humbling in some way to, uh, to be, to be a stand up for 16 years and then go into something where you're, you're not, uh, the expert. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you have no proof. You have no proof that, you know, if someone puts me on a stand up lineup, I might be intimidated by the other comics, but I'm like, I can get laughs. I, I might not be the best comic, but I'm not going to be the worst. And so stepping into scenes, I was like, just don't be the guy in the scene where people are like, ah, just, I love everything. I just wish he wasn't yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if it directly came out of this show, but I saw that you you were recently cast in uh, Damien Chazelle's next movie, Babylon. Yeah. That also was during Zoom. <laughs> I was in the Zoom world as well. I had put myself on tape for that a long time ago, and uh, I, I assume I assumed that maybe COVID had shut everything down because in this business, when you audition and you don't hear back, it's you didn't get it, uh, and that's usually a thing. So I didn't hear back. So I reached out to my manager and I said, um, "Hey, did I did I not get this, or did they shut down for COVID?" I was like, "Either way, now that I'm shooting physical, my confidence is like." really up and I feel really good. I'd love to put myself on tape again. And, uh, so then she reached out to just see if I could do that and see where they were at. And, uh, they got back and they were like, yeah, Damien wants to, wants to get on a zoom and, and do an audition. So I, my confidence was soaring. Cause I was like, Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm such a fan of his work and I think he's just incredible. That part of me was just happy just to get on a Zoom. I was like, oh, what a cool thing. <laughs> Even if I don't get it, what a cool thing this is. Get directed to, by to get this to uh, great director. <laughs> exactly. And so, yeah, I just, I riffed with him and did the scenes with him. And uh, it, it got me, uh, it got me the role. So, uh, and I think, again, a big part of it was the fact that I could just kind of be isolated over Zoom and be in my own space to do it. Did you already shoot that one or that's you're going to, or what's the status? We started it. That goes into production uh, pretty soon in a few weeks. Yeah. And is it uh, what kind of, what kind of character are you playing in that one? I am playing a drug dealer, which is super fun for me. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a period piece in the late 1920s. So it's not a, it's not a, a, uh, huge role. But when people say there are no small roles, I absolutely now understand what they mean. Because while not while I'm not in the movie, (laughs) top to bottom with these these huge monologues to deliver, I am still wildly nervous about uh, the (laughs) same thing I was nervous in physical, (laughs) like just show up and be able to pass the ball. So this is a huge movie with a lot of big, uh, big stars. Yeah, and I, I, it's truly, it's truly surreal. It's surreal to, you know, 
sort of get to do what you sort of wished for. Um, you know, being like, oh, I wish I could be in a movie like that, or I wish I could be in a show like that, to suddenly be doing it. And not that it just fell from the sky out of nowhere. I mean, it sort of did, but, you know, you, you work hard enough at your craft and the right person happens to notice, and then you get your shot to to do it. And uh, still, even, even just getting that shot, it's just bizarre. Now that stand-up is coming back, do you, do you feel like you want to split your time evenly between stand-up and acting or do you do you feel like you want to really go you know pivot back hard towards stand-up or where's your where's your head on on that it's it's interesting i think i was able to focus on physical so much because there was no stand-up to be had and i i didn't i wasn't even thinking about it i didn't even allow myself to sort even fantasize about it because it was just gone i wonder that i do know that you know like i said i do have this hour that i really like and i do want to shoot it so that is in the back of my mind of of when and how long will that take. I'm usually pretty pretty slow about uh, getting my rhythm down, but I've also never taken a year off with an hour that I just need to go back and learn again. Um, so I I yeah. So I'm kind of curious. Like maybe you know I have tons of recordings of myself doing this hour. So I'm kind of like yeah. Maybe I get on stage and it just the 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 muscles there and the rhythms there, and I find myself able to shoot this thing much sooner than expected, but I just don't know. I, I don't, I know that I'm very excited about wanting to really work on acting after the stuff that I've been fortunate enough to do, but I am torn a little bit, you know, knowing that you have an hour in your back pocket <laughs> and you're like, Oh, I gotta get this out there. It, it tears you up a little bit. 50 50 for sure. So before we sort of get to the end here, this podcast is called the last laugh. And what I like to do towards the end is talk about the first laugh, um, which is uh, sort of our speed round, to start, do you remember the first piece of comedy that really made you laugh as a kid growing up, something that you just really connected with and, and thought was funny when you were younger? A big laugh or a big self-discovery of a laugh uh, could be prior to this, but I do remember my dad, there was a Marx Brothers uh, marathon I think on AMC at the time, back when it was the more traditional, you know, AMC programming. And uh, it was their movie Horse Feathers. And I don't know why, but my dad made me watch it. Not that I didn't want to, but he was so driven to be like, yeah, watch, watch this movie, watch the Marx Brothers. And so I remember watching it and sort of having that sort of strange thing in your brain realize like, oh, adults, adults are silly. Adults can be silly. And I don't know that I had watched enough of anything to kind of realize it, especially in such a clownish way. And I also remember being as a kid, I looked right past the fact that this was an old movie and it's black and white and mm -hmm. I've never heard of these that people. Didn't phase but you. <laughs> it didn't phase me at all. I and I watched it, we taped it, you know, on the on the VHS and the VCR and we I, I watched it several times. I've I've tried to show it to my daughter. I've tried to look for it and see if it's streaming anywhere to just show my daughter or buy it. But it, it had an impact on me for sure that you're not a silly kid and then you have to be an adult and everything becomes more serious. These guys are clowns and this is what they're doing with their entire life. And then from there, the reason that it had such an impact on me is from there, I feel like my education in the in sort of comedy in a way with Abbott and Costello, Laurel and Hardy, eventually Monty Python, like it really blossomed from from that one experience of getting to know who the Marx Brothers were first. And even Groucho's like, this is your life, like all that stuff. I, I thought Groucho Marx was just a genius. What do you remember about the very first time you performed comedy on stage? I, I remember that I did, uh, I closed out an open mic poetry night. Um, I invited uh, everybody I went to school with, so about 40 friends showed up on a random December night to, I think they wanted to see me bomb. And that's sort of what I thought was going to happen too. But because I sort of stacked the crowd unintentionally, uh, I just went up and talked and hung out for 30 minutes. And uh, it was enough for me to go, oh, that was really fun. You know, there's already something in comedians where you do crave attention uh, on stage. It might not be off stage, but there is something about wanting people's attention when you want to perform something. And I sort of already knew I had that in me, this desire and desperate need to get people to think I'm funny. And I think that night I was like, oh, finally an outlet for my dysfunction. <laughs> uh, were you improvising that very first night? Uh, I had written down, uh, it, it's funny, this has sort of stayed my process, but I had written down 
some topics of things that I thought were funny that I was just like, oh, I'll just talk about that because <laughs> yeah, didn't I didn't really know how to write. Self. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember one was um, that it, you always see a homeless person asking for money outside of a church. And I would just talked about how you're sort of in a position, you know, you leave the yeah. church and you kind of are like, well, I did just learn about what I should do in this scenario. But I was like, it also does seem like your odds are better if you're outside of a bank, because then yeah. you know for a fact uh, <laughs> yeah. who's walking out of there. And I just had written down homeless person, church slash bank. <laughs> so I never really wrote it out. I just kind of because I didn't know I didn't really know that you did write things out. And I didn't really understand it because, you know, so many comics, even Jerry Seinfeld, who is so, you know, nitpicking every word is still so good at it that you do think he's just saying mm -hmm. it. And so mm -hmm. I approached it that way, thinking that's what they're actually doing. Yeah. And then just never changed. <laughs> and I never changed, I think, because I was able to get laughs. And I, I think I kind of liked that it just felt for me, as soon as the words become very concrete, I think I have a harder time selling it that it's out of the blue. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, if I do keep some of it out of the blue, then I'd maybe sell it a little better. Like, sure, the setup is always this, but the stuff in the middle could be anything. And then the end is this. And I liken it to jazz or like a fish concert where you're like, well, they start with this, but I don't know what they're going to do in the middle. And I'm like, yeah, I, that's what I like to listen to. So that's what I'll try to do. Yeah. Do you have a, a first bit or joke that really worked, that really connected with, with audiences that you remembered thinking uh, was like your first great bit? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it was great, but the one one thing I can play on the piano is uh, Counting Crows Colorblind, <laughs> which uh, is not very difficult. Um, it's, <laughs> if I can do it, a lot of people can do it. And uh, I just remember, and I did it that night at the Over My Crochonics, that they do uh, concerts or they, you know, they have bands play there. So there's a piano on stage and I sat down and I just said, this is every Counting Crows song you've ever heard. And I just started playing that song and then I just started listing you know, basically anything that goes with the season of like fall or it's like yeah. burnt orange, cappuccinos, <laughs> Halloween, but That's in a good. hip kind of way. And I, I remember the crowd, it, it's not a great joke, but I remember people being like, he's right. That is like accounting crows. <laughs> that is their topics that they sing about. What about, do you have a, uh, a first time or a worst, worst time uh, bombing story? You know, I, bombed once at, uh, I was hosting at Caroline's in Times Square. And uh, I'm not a good host. I'm not a good host at all. I'm good at having my time slot and just doing something with it. I'm not great at coming back up. <laughs> I'm just not good at it. And uh, so I'm hosting because that's what I was hired to do that for that show. And some guys came in and I just had said, hey, don't talk during the performance because they just did. And then they kind of talked during some performers and I kind of yelled at them and I tried to make jokes about them. And then there was very few people there. I think maybe there were 20 people in a room that holds maybe 300 to 400 <laughs> people uh, all spread out. And uh, some guy, you know, who I thought would understand that I'm trying to get them to be quiet so everyone can listen to the show. He yelled at me. And then the whole audience, I realized in that moment, okay, oh, they all hate me. Like, everyone <laughs> here hates me. You thought it was just um, those two guys. I thought it was just, yeah, I thought it was just this table. And I remember the way that Caroline's did it was that when one show ended, they just sort of let the other show blend in. So people maybe stayed and just kept spending money on booze or food. And so I was supposed to go back on stage and introduce the next host. And I remember just telling him, I go, honestly, if you go up and say that I was so bad that you kicked me off the show and now you're going to start hosting, <laughs> they will love you. And he was so mad that I wasn't going to introduce him. You're like, no, I'm trying to do you a and favor. I, I, and I, I said it. I go, I know how this sounds. I was like, I'm not trying to get out of something, but you will instantly be loved at a higher level if I don't introduce you. <laughs> and so he goes, fine. I mean, he was very upset. He was like, fine, I'll just go out there. He went out there, said it, did his act, brought up the first comic, came back to the green room, and he was like, they hate you so much. <laughs> he was like, you are right. He goes, you were right. The moment I said that I, I fired you, they almost gave me a standing ovation. I'm like, I told you. I told you they would love you. <laughs> That's great. And then finally, what is the last piece of comedy that really made you laugh? Um, if there's anyone you want to shout out, a comedian or a TV show or something that, that made you laugh uh, recently? I have a great example, and I hope people take it to heart. The reboot of Vacation with Ed Helms has a horrible score, 
on Rotten Tomatoes. You know, all of us didn't go see it for the same reason that you just were like, I don't, I'm not doing this. I don't need, I don't need this. Yeah. I don't need this. And also the joke that they put in the trailer, it's actually maybe the most unfunny joke in the movie. But I have to say that movie is absolutely hilarious. And it is a huge laugh every three to five minutes. You are getting amazing comedic performances. And just truly, a the tone is not what Vacation was. It's a different comedy tone. It's a different movie uh, altogether. And I, it pains me that people made a movie that is so funny that people just didn't really go see or know about. And just to tell your listeners, you will be so happy you you watch that movie. Just give it give it twenty minutes. Sit down and watch it. In twenty this minutes, great, if you are not yeah. if you haven't died laughing a few times. <laughs> Then it's not for you, but it is such a funny movie. I, I am a huge fan of it. This is a great summer movie tip. Yeah, for absolutely. Everyone sitting at home. Yeah, that's right. That's great. Well, Rory, thank you so much. This was this was really a lot of fun, and uh, I've just enjoyed your comedy for so long, dating back to the uh, the dueling uh, the dueling double <laughs> yeah, ten, ten, yeah, yeah, which is insane to think that that was ten years ago. So I feel like that was the the first time that I saw you, and now we're we're exactly ten years later. So that's right feels right here we are <laughs> well thanks so much and uh good luck with with everything yeah thank you thank you so much to my fellow fish fan and father rory scoville for that great conversation his new fully improvised special live without fear is streaming now on his youtube channel and the accompanying album version is available on all of the major music platforms as well We'll include links to both in the description for this episode. New episodes of Physical are available to stream every Friday on Apple TV+, and you can subscribe to Rory's newest podcast, Pen Pals, wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at Claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.